1: that's audible.com/wonderypod or text wonderypod to 500500
2: tonight on the special edition of 60 minutes presents front row seats
3: i'm past patiently waiting I'm passionately smashing every expectation every action act of creation
2: the show has reached the loftiest heights
3: I'm my soul, in my
1: shot. I'm
2: and it is well on its way To becoming a billion dollar musical.
1: So, what did I miss?
2: It has become almost impossible to land a ticket.
4: I will kill your friends and family.
2: Those lucky enough to get in never know who might be sitting next to them. The President of the United
3: States had our sixth preview. It's put my dreams to shame.
2: Tonight we bring you a special encore performance from what's called the Sistine Chapel Choir, but is more commonly known as the Pope's Choir. Beneath Michelangelo's masterpiece, you'll hear the soaring sacred music from the oldest choir in the world.
0: featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
2: Good evening. I'm Charlie Rose. Welcome to 60 Minutes Presents. Tonight, front row seats for extraordinary musical performances, both on Broadway and in Rome. We begin with an encore presentation of our story about the breakthrough musical Hamilton, While the original cast has moved on, the show is thriving, opening in cities across the country. And its creator, 37-year-old Lin-Manuel Miranda, is collecting awards, writing, acting, and songwriting the same hard work that led to his masterpiece. We originally broadcast this story 16 months ago, shortly after opening night on Broadway. Tonight, you'll see an expanded version that includes more of the remarkable performances and more about Hamilton himself, who was one of the most brilliant figures in American history.
3: The thing about Hamilton is he spoke in paragraphs. Um, And so the opening sentence of our show is this crazy run-on sentence. How does a bastard orphan, son of a whore and a Scotsman, dropped in the middle of a forgotten spot in the Caribbean by providence, impoverished and squalor, comma, grow up to be a hero and a scholar? That's the question we're going to answer for the next two hours and 45 minutes. I'm past patiently waiting. I'm passionately smashing. Every expectation, every action's an act of creation.
2: In Hamilton, the answers come fast.
3: This time I'm thinking
4: past tomorrow. And I am not going
2: my shot is the show's anthem as Hamilton arrived in New York City during the American Revolution and sees his opportunity
4: away my, not
3: my shots. It took me a year to write my shot, which is Hamilton's big I want" song It took you a year yeah because every couplet needed to be the best couplet I ever wrote. That's how, that's how seriously I was taking it. Hamilton yeah. demands lots from you. Yes. I mean, he's calling on your best. He's calling on my best, because he's the smartest guy in the room. So I have to write from the perspective of the smartest guy in the room when the other people in the room are Jefferson and Washington and very smart guys. Sir, entrust me with the command.
2: Hamilton was front and center at nearly every major event in early American history.
0: Man, the man is nonstop.
2: He never became president, but had a bigger impact than many who did.
3: Let me tell you what I wish I'd known.
2: His mentor was George Washington, played here by Chris Jackson, who plucked Hamilton out of the ranks and relied on him for 20 years.
1: So what did I miss? What did I miss?
2: David Diggs originated the role of Thomas Jefferson, Hamilton's primary political opponent.
1: I've been in Paris meeting lots of different ladies. I guess I basically missed the late 80s.
2: The show reflects Miranda's broad musical taste, but hip-hop and rap define it. Your music is hip-hop. Your music is rap.
3: Yes, and I also believe that that form is uniquely suited to tell Hamilton's story. Because it has more words per measure than any other musical genre. It has rhythm and it has density. And if Hamilton had anything in his writings, it was this density.
4: I'm a girl in a world in which my only job is to marry rich. My father has no son, so I'm the one who has to social, because the one. So I'm the oldest and the wittiest and the goth in New York City is city is.
2: Miranda wrote this for Hamilton's sister-in-law, Angelica Schuyler, played by Renee Elise Goldsberry. In Hamilton, women get equal time. The idea to cast black and Latino actors to play the founders was deliberate. Miranda wanted to connect America then with America now. Hamilton blossomed during an extended run at New York's Public Theater and was greeted with fireworks over the Hudson when it opened on Broadway.
3: I come up here in the opening number.
2: The show has already reached the loftiest heights. In 16 months at the Richard Rogers Theatre, Hamilton has established itself as Broadway's impossible ticket, with premium seats selling for nearly $1,000 each. And those lucky enough to get in never know who might be next to them. The President of the United States. At our sixth preview. The Vice President of the
3: United States. Yes it's put my dreams to shame <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> it's it's super super humbling and when you list those bold-faced names that have come to see the show i see those as an opportunity to see the show with fresh eyes while i'm doing it oh. when dick cheney is sitting in the audience i think what is he thinking when he hears the lyric history has its eyes on you you know when uh the president is here what is he thinking as he sees George Washington say, I have to step down so the country can move on.
2: Hamilton was a complicated figure, war hero, famous philanderer, political thinker, mud-slinging politician, and the nation's first treasury secretary.
5: He creates the first fiscal system, first monetary system, first customs service, first central bank, on and on and on.
2: Ron Chernow wrote the biography that inspired the musical and is the show's historical advisor.
5: Here's the story of a penniless orphaned immigrant kid who comes out of nowhere and sets the world on fire, and his achievements were absolutely monumental. You say he came out of nowhere. Where is nowhere? He was born on the island of uh, Nevis. Uh, He spent his adolescence on St. Croix. His father abandoned the family when Alexander was 11, Uh, His mother died when he was 13. When he came to North America, he didn't know a soul.
3: This is Inwood. This is where I grew up. We're still playing dominoes on the street.
5: It is a story Miranda could relate to.
2: His father graduated college at 18 in Puerto Rico and moved to Manhattan. Luis Miranda became a prominent political consultant. His wife, Luz, a psychologist.
3: Luz and I, we, 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 we have always known... That this kid was destined for greatness. He's Concerned. looking down. <laughs> my, my, my only concern was always, is this greatness going to come with money so <laughs> that he could survive forever? When did you
2: see the musical talent? Always.
1: From the time he was oh. tiny. He loved to
2: sing. He was always creating, and he loved words and songs. At five, Miranda tested into Hunter College Elementary, a school for highly gifted children where he told us sometimes he felt like he did not belong.
3: You know, I I went to a school where everyone was smarter than me. I'm not blowing smoke. I I was surrounded by genius, genius kids. What's interesting about growing up in a culture like that is you go, all right, I got to figure out what my thing is. Because I'm not smarter than these kids. I'm not funnier than half of them. So I better figure out what it is I want to do and work really hard at that and because intellectually i'm treading water to to be here
2: so why do you think i'm sitting here talking to you and not sitting
3: here talking to one of your classmates because i picked a lane and i started running ahead of everybody else (laughs) (laughs) i'm that's the honest answer was like i was like all right this
2: this was theater he was in practically every school play This is upstairs. This is really where we grew up. The family didn't have a lot of money to see Broadway shows, but they did collect cast albums, and Miranda consumed them.
3: Camelot, follow me. The lusty month of May. Lusty month of May. All of the wordplay. If you may take me to the fair. You'll thrash and bash him. I'll smash and mash him. You'll, you know, he will be trouble, he will be rubble. (laughs) If ever I would leave you. If ever, yeah. It would not be in springtime, knowing how in spring I'm bewitched by you so How can you have so many songs in your head? <laughs> because I had a lot so of time many on my head. Yeah, well, these were... Do just... you have room for anything else in your head? I mean, I don't know my social security number.
2: <laughs> he graduated from Wesleyan University in 2002 with a degree in theater arts. That's where he began working on a show about his old neighborhood.
3: Lottery Part of the routine, everybody's got a job, everybody's got a
2: dream. It turned into Miranda's first Broadway show. In the Heights won the 2008 Tony for Best Musical. Two months later, he picked up Ron Chernow's book during a vacation.
3: This is what I knew from high school. I knew Hamilton died in a duel with the vice president. I knew he was on the $10 bill. But really, I just was browsing the biography section, it could have been Truman. And as you read it, what happened? I was thunderstruck. I got to the part where, you know, a hurricane destroys St. Croix, where Hamilton is living. And he writes a poem about the carnage. And this poem um, gets him off the island. You saw a rap artist in him. Yes, I drew a direct line between Hamilton's writing his way out of his circumstances and the rappers I'd grown up adoring. It's Biggie and Jay-Z writing about growing up in the Marcy Projects in Brooklyn. It's Eminem writing about growing up white in Detroit. It's writing about that struggle, and paradoxically, your writing being so good it gets you out. I'm thrilled uh, the White House called me... uh, Nine
2: months after reading the book, he was invited to the White House to perform a song from In the Heights. He decided to take a risk.
3: I'm actually working... On a hip hop album, uh, it's a concept album about the life of someone I think embodies hip hop, Treasury Secretary Alexander Hamilton. <laughs> you laugh, but it's true. So uh, when you did it, it was, uh, and you look at the video was, uh, now, I see a terrified young Puerto Rican man. Really? Terrified, because there's the leader of the free world, newly elected leader of the free world, his entire family, there's Biden the ten dollar founding father without a father Got but
2: as he began the story the room was mesmerized
3: moved in with a cousin the cousin committed suicide left him with nothing but ruined pride something new inside a voice saying Alex you gotta fend for yourself he started retreating and reading every treatise on the shelf. there wouldn't been nothing left to do for someone less astute he would have been dead to destitute without a cent of restitution started working clerking for his late mother's landlord trading sugarcane and all the things he can't afford that video is a microcosm of my entire hamilton experience i say hip-hop alexander hamilton and everyone laughs and then by the end they're not laughing um because they're in it because they've been sucked into the story just like I got sucked into the story. When we finally drive the British away, Rafael is there waiting in Chesapeake.
2: Miranda's gift is bringing that story to today's audiences, reminding them whom to thank for building this nation.
3: Are you say no sweats? We're finally on the field, we've had quite a run. Immigrants, we get the job done. There's a lot of ways in, right? If you're scared of hip-hop or you thought hip-hop was not music for you, we're going to give you King George, who sings a British Invasion-style song from the 60s. That's a showstopper, too. It's a showstopper, and, um, and it's a breath. You say the price of my love's not a price that you're willing to pay?
2: The British King, played here by Jonathan Groff, scoffs at the colonist and European immigrants trying to go it alone
4: you'll be back soon you'll see you remember you belong to me you'll be back time will tell you remember that i serve
2: you well
4: oceans rise empires fall we have seen each other through it all
3: what's interesting about that role and I didn't even really anticipate it when I was writing it the king becomes the audience's surrogate as they watch this country being formed in front of their eyes and the king goes wait you're really going to keep changing leaders wait what are you going to do now that the war is over Oh, you're going to come back oh you'll be back um, he speaks to the country as if it was uh, a girlfriend he didn't treat well
4: cause when Bush comes to shout, I will kill your friends and family to
0: remind you
1: of
0: my love
3: I think the secret sauce of this show is that I can't believe this story's true it's such an improbable and amazing story and I learned about it while I was writing it and I think that enthusiasm Um, is baked into the recipe.
0: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
2: A year and a half ago, the Broadway musical Hamilton struck like a cultural earthquake, shaking up the worlds of theater, music, and American history all at the same time. It even seems to have altered our money after the Treasury Department scrapped plans to remove Alexander Hamilton's face from the $10 bill. The man responsible is Len manuel Miranda, who, along with the rest of the original cast, has moved on while the show lives on. In this encore presentation of our story on the musical, we'll show you how Miranda took stories from history and made them accessible to today's audience.
3: I think we take great pains to knock all these guys off their pedestals. Yeah, you do. This is Washington impatient and yelling, are these the men with which I am to defend America? Which he did as he was fleeing New York. That's a quote. This is Jefferson and Hamilton squabbling. The issue on the table.
2: The tenor of their politics will sound familiar, too. Hamilton's debate with Jefferson over how to pay off the Revolutionary War debt was so intense, Miranda stages it as a rap battle.
3: Are you ready for a cabinet meeting, huh?
2: with Washington as referee.
1: In Virginia, we plant seeds in the ground. We create. You just want to move our money around. This financial plan is an outrageous demand and it's too many damn pages for any man to understand. Stand with me in the land of the free. Pray to God we never see Hamilton's candidacy. Look, when Britain taxed our tea, we got frisky. Imagine what gonna happen when you try to tax our whiskey. Thank
3: you, Secretary Jefferson. Thomas a real nice declaration. Welcome to the present. We're running a real nation. Would you like to join us? Or stay mellow doing whatever the hell it is you're doing Monticello. A civics lesson from a slaver. Hey, neighbor, your debts are paid because you don't pay for labor. We plant seeds in the South. We create and keep ranting. We know who's really doing the planting.
2: And another th- Hamilton's combative nature made him monumental enemies, including Presidents Adams, Jefferson, Madison, and Monroe all downplayed hamilton 's achievements and diminished his legacy. The only one to fare worse in the eyes of history was hamilton's killer, Vice President Aaron Burr. Miranda gives him a starring role. Burr becomes your narrator Yes, because you
3: need what well what I need balance Hamilton would be happy to narrate his own story in paragraphs and paragraphs in paragraphs and paragraphs. paragraphs and also. Burr is the mirror image of Hamilton. He's also orphaned at a young age. Speeds through college. Speeds through Princeton in two years. Starts at 13, age 13. Just as smart as Hamilton? Just as smart as Hamilton. Um, But every time Hamilton says go, Burr says stop. Um, He's just cautious.
4: Hamilton doesn't hesitate.
2: Burr was originally played by Leslie Odom, Jr. Takes, and
4: he takes, and he takes, and he keeps winning anyway. Changes the game, plays,
1: and he raises the stakes. And if there's a reason, he seems to thrive, and so few to survive, then God it, I'm for it. I'm willing to wait for it.
2: Miranda explores the rivalry between Burr and Hamilton from friends to competitors to political rivals. In one song, they finally become enemies.
4: I, I want to be in the room where it happens, the room where it happens.
3: Room Where It Happens was the toughest jigsaw puzzle I've ever done.
2: A puzzle explaining how Hamilton, Jefferson, and Madison made a backroom (coughs) deal to move the U.S. Capitol from New York City to Washington, D.C. in 1790. In the musical, This Becomes the Final Straw, of the man left
4: out. I'm
3: I'm both trying to explain this very complicated compromise that happened behind closed doors, and what makes it exciting in the context of our story is we're telling it from the perspective of the one guy who wasn't there, Aaron Burr. He says... These guys just traded away the capital of our country in exchange for an unprecedented financial plan. And it all happened over a dinner that none of us were at. None of us had any say in the decision. The room where it happens. The room where it happens.
2: For years, the story of Burr and Hamilton was hidden away in places like this, the New York Historical Society Library. It holds many of their original writings. This is where historian Ron Chernow researched the biography that inspired Miranda.
5: Lin-Manuel Miranda, I think, was smart enough to know that the best way to dramatize the story was to stick as close to the facts as possible. You want violence? There's violence in the story. You want sex? There's sex in the story. You want power? There's power, want power in the story. in the story. This has all of the ingredients. Including the story of Hamilton's political
2: downfall. It began with a year-long affair with a young woman named Mariah Reynolds, and it turned into the nation's first bona fide
5: sex scandal. I think that what uh, makes the whole story so um, bizarre and unbelievable is that Hamilton ended up paying blackmail money to Mr. Reynolds, and this at a time when Hamilton was not just the Treasury Secretary, but he was effectively like the prime minister of Washington's government. So he was the most powerful man in the government. When
2: he was exposed, Hamilton did something no one expected. He confessed everything.
5: He wrote a 95-page pamphlet when even his closest friends thought that a delicately worded paragraph or two would have done the uh, the. Tr- tr- I apologize. Tr- tr- I, tr- apologize tr- I made a mistake. And that would have done. It.
1: Alexander Hamilton had a torrid affair, and he wrote it down right there. Highlights
2: in the show, Miranda uses Hamilton's own words from what became known as the Reynolds pamphlet.
1: I had frequent meetings with her. Most of them
0: at my own house house his own house Dance.
2: the scandal was one big reason there was never a president Hamilton
1: he's made these dead white guys make sense <laughs> to a
5: bunch of you know black and brown people he's made them make sense in the context of our time with our music.
2: We spoke last fall with some of Miranda's most important collaborators, former cast members Leslie Odom Jr., Renee Elise Goldsberry, David Diggs, Philippa Sue, and Chris Jackson. What is it that connects? What are you hearing? What is it that's resonating in these audiences? There's so many different things happening in
3: this story that it's almost impossible to peg. I think it's just the music, or it's just the movement,
0: or it's the lights, or it's the, the stage, and it could be any number of those things or all of those things. Actually,
2: These are good yeah. female roles too,
6: aren't yes, they? Yes, they are. One of the things that's exciting to me about playing Angelica Schuyler and feeling so powerful um, and knowing that like in the time that we live in with you know Hillary running for president, we get to show who the founding mothers are yeah. and what they did and they were not just sewing flags. They were actually the muse like Angelica Schuyler was to Thomas Jefferson and to Hamilton.
2: David, you said it gives you something you didn't have before, ownership of your own history.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is the only time I've ever felt particularly American is in the last, like, eight months that I've been working on this.
2: Hamilton came back to life at a time when politics and immigration were the hottest topics in America. But it was Miranda's writing that made it a juggernaut. When you write... I've been told you write, and and if it's sad, tears come to your eyes. You're in the moment to express yourself.
3: Yeah, I think think of acting and writing as pretty much the same thing. It's all about getting inside the skin of your characters and seeing where they are and knowing how they've grown up. You have to know all this, like in your bones, what they've come up against, who they are, and then you just start talking as them. And you write until the rust comes out of the faucet, and it's clear water. And you write down the clear water. Because the clear water is the perfection at the end of this. Well, it's the stuff that feels true. The bullet hit him actually
5: on the right side.
2: Most people already know how the story of Alexander Hamilton ends. He died in 1804 in a duel with Aaron Burr in Weehawken, New Jersey. By then, Burr was a lame-duck vice president. Hamilton, just shy of his 50th birthday, was practicing law. How could
5: that happen? Dueling revolved around uh, honor. You were protecting your honor. But here are two men. They're not ordinary politicians. They have a lot to lose. Here were two uh, politicians with their careers in decline who thought that they would uh, establish their courage and manhood on the dueling ground. Burr was feeling very, very frustrated. It seemed like at every uh, turn, Alexander Hamilton was there, you know, blocking his uh, path.
3: He writes in a letter before the duel, he said, there was no way this could have been avoided. We've been circling each other for a while. It was always going to come to this. This, this was party. gonna happen. This was gonna happen. They're fundamentally different men and they run in concentric circles until
1: they meet. And everything around them is moving.
2: Miranda so, and director Tommy that. Kale stage the intensifying rivalry between the two men. Oh, ah, yeah. yeah.
6: It's pretty cool, right? It's really cool.
2: The turntable was essential.
0: It allows the propulsion of the show to continue, to continue this insistence of movement that Hamilton had in his life.
3: I imagine death so much, it feels more like a memory.
0: Many
2: historians, including Chernow, believe Hamilton deliberately the fired the into the air, it, throwing away his shot. Wait. It is a fatal miscalculation.
4: I hear wailing in the streets Somebody tells me
3: Here's the thing about Hamilton, I think Hamilton was ready to die from the time he was 14 years old. I think what he has is what I have, which is that thing of tomorrow's not promised, I got to get as much done as I can. It's not only good acting, it is not only good music. People are saying it's transformative. It certainly changes my life. Um, But I think it's because when great people cross our path, and I'm talking about Hamilton here, it forces us to reckon with what we're doing with our lives. You know? At my age, Hamilton is Treasury Secretary and creating our financial system from scratch. And building a country. Yeah. I wrote two plays.
0: Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it.
2: It is the oldest choir in the world. Evidence of its existence dates back to the 7th century. Today it's called the Sistine Chapel Choir, but is more commonly known as the Pope's Choir. That's because it's at the Pope's side for all of the important papal celebrations As we first reported in December, the choir performed in St. Peter's Basilica during the Pope's Christmas Eve Mass. The choir also sang at a private mass at the Vatican, honoring the 80th birthday of Pope Francis. The choir may be dedicated to the Pope, but historically it has held concerts on its own, especially at its home base, the magnificent Sistine Chapel. It was here beneath Michelangelo's breathtaking frescoes in one of the world's greatest wonders where we recently attended a concert staged by the Pope's choir. Is sacred, contemplative, mystical. It soars whether in concert at the Sistine Chapel or during Mass next door at St. Peter's Basilica. When the Pope presides, the choir provides a holy soundtrack. Made up of 30 boys and 22 men, the choir helps spread the Pope's message.
6: We have a job to inspire people. They may not understand a word of what's going on in the Vatican, but when they hear us singing, we have to direct them to consider something which is transcendent and divine. That's our job.
2: Mark Spiropolis, a baritone from Britain, Vittoria Catarci, a bass from Italy, and Cesare Arkadiusz Stock, a tenor from Poland, consider themselves more than just voices of the Pope. <laughs> what does it mean that you're called the Pope's choir? We are um, the Pope's family. Pope's family. Yes. Yes. His personal choir. Pope Francis is the most popular Pope in a generation. He spends much time tending to the poor and the dispossessed. It is this humility that also makes his choir feel at home, as Mark Sparopoulos learned when he joined last year.
6: When I first met him, the whole thing was completely overwhelming. And he said... uh, you're from London. Like, Welcome to the Vatican. Like this. I was expecting, you know, sort of... Yeah. I, I was so welcomed by this. I, I was very surprising and very impressed by quite how... what a personal touch he had.
0: As it
2: tours Italy performing in some of the country's great cathedrals, the choir sings in harmony. Until recently, the Pope's choir wasn't worthy of the name or the settings where it sang. For decades, the choir lacked cohesion. Many members came from opera and made sure they were heard. The choir was called the Sistine Screamers. We were aware that we were singing too loud. Vittorio Cattaccia remembers the era of the booming voices. He's been with the choir for 30 years and three popes. Can you sing for me the difference between the way it was and the way it is now? For example, we used to
6: sing uh, uh, and now we sing It's completely different because we are looking for A very uh, spiritual sound, Mm -hmm. not
2: a meaty sound. The choir turned around after Maestro Massimo Palambella was hired in 2010, only the sixth man to be appointed director of the Pope's choir in 200 years.
3: I didn't have to invent a sound. I had to rediscover a sound, which was the
1: sound the choir once produced in the Sistine Chapel. Nella Cappella Sistina.
2: Palambella went back to the past, combining high-tech and ancient texts. He studied endlessly looking for the precise vocal range that Palestrina originally intended when he wrote the sacred music that provides the bulk of the choir's repertoire. Palestrina composed his music with the Sistine Chapel in mind after Michelangelo had finished painting his masterpiece.
6: Palestrina was writing when the paint was still wet of these incredible frescoes. And when we sing Palestrina, it's not like looking at a fresco. It's the equivalent of being in a fresco.
2: Maestro Palambella also softened the tone by hardening the workload. The choir went from rehearsing three hours a week to three hours a day. So you have to be a perfectionist, tough. (laughs) Exactly right. If you are on a journey of excellence, how far along are you on your journey? Chica meta, halfway. You sound like an American sports coach. The choir
6: is a very, very terrifying beast, because (laughs) if you are not able to handle it, it goes away, it runs away. This is not safari, this is more dangerous. (laughs) You have to handle the choir. We were compared to a Ferrari, but you have to drive Ferrari to do dressage, like, you know, like the horses. Just little bent, little, you know, very light dressage. Dressage. Mm Not...
2: At rehearsal and in concert, Palambella conducts the choir like a manic traffic cop. The maestro was born on Christmas Day, but with his choir he's not always in a holiday mood. For the boys in the choir, commands from the maestro can be jolting. When he's not happy, Lorenzo. (laughs) (laughs)
4: What? He has some explosions of anger. But then he calms down, because then we sing the piece properly.
2: Thirteen-year-old Lorenzo Malizia is one of the boys, all sopranos, who are able to produce the high notes that give the choir its celestial sound. Just listen to how the boys warm up. Refers to them as the white voices for the purity of their sound. At home, like many Italian boys their age, they have ordinary pictures on their walls. And then there are reminders of why the boys are extraordinary. When people ask you about the pope, what do you tell them?
4: They ask us, how is the pope? Is he fun? Does he always crack jokes? We say yes, yes, it's true. So he's fun.
2: 13-year-old Riccardo Catapano has been in the pope's choir for four years. I'd be nervous if I was singing in front of the Pope
4: I am a little anxious but then I think that the Pope does not understand anything about music he only says how beautiful it sounds so I continue to sing
2: across Rome auditions for the choir held in the second and third grades several times a year instructors fan out to see who has the right timber 700 boys are tested a year in all. It can be painstaking. Few make it. Only a dozen at most are selected annually. The chosen ones are sworn in during an elaborate ceremony. Each are given five-year scholarships at a special school in the center of Rome. They aren't studying to become priests. Their curriculum runs the gamut.
4: Are you Italian? Yes, I am.
2: They may be known as choir boys on Sundays, (laughs) but the rest of the week they're typical boys on the cusp of their teenage years. These are hallowed times for the boys until the day arrives when their voices break and they must leave the Pope's choir. They can return as adults, but 11-year-old Emanuela Bucarella fears what's coming soon. What happens when your voice breaks? Will that be a sad day?
0: For me,
4: it will be an ugly moment when that time will come in which my voice will no longer be ready to sing the way we sing now. I try to make the most of everything, Until that day will come, in which they tell me, my voice is no longer good to sing.
2: In their remaining time with the choir, their voices will join those of their adult brethren to bring the sounds of heaven to earth. The music of the Pope's choir speaks to the soul.
3: We recently did a concert and a man came up to me at the end of the concert and said that the choir that I conduct is missing one thing.
2: Wings. Wings to go (laughs) as an angel. Come angel. I'm Charlie Rose. Thank you for joining us. We'll be back next week with another edition of 60 Minutes.
0: If you like 60 Minutes, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey.